Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use. And wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Hello again, Dr. Dyke Drummond here with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast coming at you from beautiful Seattle, Washington, and our home on the web at thehappymd.com. I'm super excited because I have Dr. Elizabeth Hughes here. Dr. Hughes is a dermatologist, coach, speaker, even has her own line of skincare products. And I was turned on to her work when I saw an article on LinkedIn just recently that was comparing a doctor's relationship with their career to the dysfunctional romantic relationship some people get in in their marriage or, or, or non-married relationships, the kind of stuff that people write movie scripts about. And I was fascinated because we've talked about this a lot in my coaching communities. I was fascinated. I wanted to bring Dr. Hughes on and ask her a little bit more about her history and how she learned this and how she explains it to her clients. So Dr. Hughes, welcome. Thank you so much. Call me Elizabeth, please. Okay. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about how you learned. When It must have been some sort of eureka aha moment. Oh my gosh. This relationship with my career mirrors a relationship that I had someplace else. I learned a lot from that original relationship that applies here too. Oh my gosh, that kind of a thing, right? Right. I It wasn't as much of a eureka moment. More there had been long-term dissatisfaction with medicine. It, you want to call it burnout, but it just wasn't professional fulfillment that I felt like my profession, or as I call it in the article, medicine, the job, was carrying an equal weight of that relationship toward the patient that I was. I was the one giving. I was the one cleaning up messes. I, the doctor, was the person making sure the patient was okay, while the medical system or medicine, the job, or whatever you want to call it, was making it as hard as possible, it felt like for me to do the right thing. And I'd been feeling that for a while. And then I was like, when I got to the point where I wanted to separate myself from doing clinical medicine, and like you, move to a situation where I have a very specific you know, patient population of physicians, as well as, as start to invent things, I realized that my separation process, all of that grief, all of that I can't, what will I do with myself? My world might crumble. I'm going to lose my house, my livelihood, my identity, all of those things. I had been churning all that through my head as I thought about leaving medicine. And then I was like, oh, I've done this before. It's funny. It took a long time for me to get that awareness. And you'd think, oh, I'm smart. Smartness should be able to, you know, I should be able to see things clearly because I've made a living being the smartest person in the room. Like we all have. We doctors are the smartest person in the room, right? And yet that's not protection. And it's not something that guarantees your success in this area. Right. It guarantees your success scholastically. 
It guarantees your success during the academic portions of our training. But once you get out into practice, it's not nearly as much use as emotional intelligence and all sorts of other things that we skip along the way. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Especially applied towards yourself. I mean, we get... I at least got some emotional intelligence and some patient-centered interviewing and all of those things, but that was all for someone else. It's turning it back and turning that that lens that we have for our patients back on ourselves and saying, wait, here's my real current reality without all of my needs, wants, desires, expectations, training. Like, here's where I really am. I'm in a situation which is not healthy for me. And I'm staying. I'm choosing to stay in this space. And I, you know, when I finally, when I finally recognized that, then I was able to say, okay, I I can drop this now. (laughs) I can make this go away. Well, it's interesting you use the word choosing. What I think you did was come to the point where you realized you were at choice. Yes. And there was another choice you could make. Now, one of the things that you did in your article is you went point by point through these facets of the relationship that were both true for the romantic relationship. And the way. Can, is there a way that you could go maybe back through some of those talking points? Absolutely. Okay, Actually, great. so the the article was like I had a thousand word limit and it was <laughs> like double the size. So I like compressed things out. Well, the the first thing is that the abuser or victimizer, whatever you want to call it, medicine, the job expects me or the the doctor to carry the weight of the relationship. All of the caring comes from the doctor. Medicine, the job doesn't have to take care of that. If medicine, the job is delaying your uh, delaying patient care because of a prior authorization or a mix-up or overly expensive medicine that's necessary. It is falls on the doctors to scramble in some way to make up for that defect in medicine, the job. That's where it is. And that's totally true, what I found with my relationship. And I, I think this was another point, is that my ex would not only have me basically scramble to keep things on an even keel, you know, keep his public face looking good, but he would do some outrageous, ridiculous stuff. And I was just supposed to roll with the punches. And that's another thing. You know, the hospital decides that it's just not going to replace a doctor who's retired, right? And everybody else will just absorb that work, right? right? That's ridiculous. So that's another one. I mean, these, these outrageous things that medicine, the profession does. That's an, that's another one. Well, and let me just interject in there. When you lose somebody due to attrition and they're not replaced and you keep seeing the patients, you've just increased the profit margin for the operation. And the CFO will never replace that person. You may think to yourself, oh, Cheryl left. It's going to be great when we get a person back to replace her. It's not going to happen if you keep seeing the patients. There's a huge financial disincentive. So that's just an outtake. Okay, ready? Point number two. (laughs) (laughs) Point number two. Well, another point was you find yourself in one of these toxic relationships tolerating things that intellectually you'd say, I would never put up with this. For instance, I will never see, for instance, dermatology is a fast paced, quick 
specialty. So it, we see people very quickly, but I never want to have less than 15 minutes for a patient visit. Mm. And all of a sudden you've got 10 minutes. And and you're like, no, 10 minutes is not long enough to do a full skin check and do a biopsy and explain what you're doing and all of that. And suddenly you find yourself doing what you said you wouldn't do, just sort of letting your standards slide. That sort of thing happens and it's it's subtle because it's just a couple extra squeezed in patients and then well we're just changing your template for everybody and welcome this is your new template and this happened to me in corporate medicine absolutely oh can you just see a couple others frog in the pot yes frog in the pot the other way to say it is don't let the camel put his nose under the tent Because pretty soon you have the whole camel in the tent, because, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, and I also want to just a just a little side note. It's a little known fact, but the it, the research that showed the frog in the pot, meaning if you put a frog in a, a pot of boiling water, he'll jump out. But if right. you put a frog in a cool pot and you heat the pot up, the frog pretty soon will be dead in the pot. By the way, all of the frogs in that experiment were pithed. Oh, <laughs> they were decorticated. Just yeah. so you know. So <laughs> if you're thinking, maybe you would recognize that <laughs> and maybe you'd get out quicker, but it doesn't work that way. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So they just didn't have what little reptilian brain there was. Right, right. right. So so we got number one, we got number two. Keep going, because I know you had three or four more. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, here's another one. So my my ex was a serial, I, I hate this word, but serial philanderer. There were lots and lots and lots of other people. And he would always say, but you're so important to me. And it really made me think, well, if I'm so important, why aren't you investing your resources and your time and your energy in (laughs) me, right? I'm important just because I'm like some steady base that you can like, you know, show around. Old reliable. Old reliable, damn it. (laughs) Uh, But- what about all of the physician substitutes that are suddenly being elevated to this idea of being equivalent to a doctor and doctors becoming providers? I mean, we're these old reliables, but newer nurse practitioners or even physician's assistants with little to no expertise are suddenly coming in and taking our jobs. And one of my things that I did in my corporate medicine world was a ton of consults. And most of them were from people who were physician equivalents, who just, if they had been a doctor and had the 10,000 plus hours that we all have by the time we're done with training, they would know that was dandruff. That was easy. That's not, you know, that's not something that requires a dermatologist intervention. But it's it's funny that that corporate medicine is enamored with these physician substitutes and expect us doctors just to say, okay, yeah, bring them on, <laughs> bring 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 your mistress in here, I'll work with her, I'll train her. <laughs> oh my, bring your mistress in here. I love it. Again, I'm going to do a little outtake here. Realize that if you're able to actually substitute a mid-level for a practicing physician, again, you've affected the financial returns of that service for the better. And and again, don't let that camel put his nose under the tent, right? Right. Um, now, Now, what will happen in the years in the near future as we start to see the baby boomer retirement cliff is 
people like you who are board certified dermatologists are going to need to work with teams of mid-level providers because you won't have an option. There aren't going to be enough doctors. We're all going to have to become better leaders. Right. Oh, without a doubt. And I think that there is a real place for that. I will say I spent the first part of my career in academic medicine overseeing residents and medical students and particularly residents. There is a way to do this and do it well, but it has to be structured in a very specific way. Well, and I would say too that the physician, not the business, but the physician needs to be at the center of the choice to to bring on a mid-level provider, the choice of person who is the mid-level provider you bring on and how to organize the team. A lot of times it's forced on you from the outside, like you said, like your partner. Oh, but 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 I love you. You're <laughs> I count on you for ever, who will wash my laundry. I mean, <laughs> right, right. right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and that's actually, I want to bring up on the next point, which is that your abuser never actually trusts you. And, and so it's a funny thing. The abuser doesn't trust you to be, here's what I found when I, with my ex, if I did something like put on lipstick or pluck a stray eyebrow? Are you having an affair? No, I'm not having an affair. I'm just <laughs> grooming. This is normal female behavior. Like, right. But he was, he was the one cheating and constantly thought I was the person who was cheating. So I looked at all of the ways that doctors are overseen to make sure that we're providing quality care. All of these coders and malpractice insurance and all of those layers, most of it isn't really necessary. Or, or I wouldn't say that it's not necessary, but let's say the baseline of that is medicine doesn't trust me, the doctor, to do the right thing, does not trust my skills, my experience, or anything like that. There's, there is this culture in medicine that the doctors are somehow a problem. We need you. We trust you to be reliable, but we don't, you know, but we kind of watch you. So and I and I would say too, just a quick outtake. This is where emotions and relationships and and business principles keep clashing. I keep stepping in here to make business observations. Uh, in America, there's a way to make more money if you can prove to a particular payer that you have a higher score on some sort of quality indicator or something like that. Right. So a lot of those things are going to send a message to you that we don't trust you. Mm -hmm. But what's actually happening is that the business is going for more cash and they need a couple of boxes checked, a couple of mouse clicks, a couple of keystrokes by somebody on your team in order to get the metric to be what they need it to be to get a few extra bucks. It's all about cash. But it does send that signal of, you know, we got to measure your quality, we got to measure your patient satisfaction, all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, definitely. You feel like Big Brother's watching you as a doctor. A lot of times somebody's watching of course what you're they are. doing all the time, it, even when they don't need to. Right? right. They're watching you from a statistical viewpoint and from all the metrics and all the mid-level managers, but you'll never see your boss unless you're in trouble. They'll never come and shadow you. <laughs> right? Oh yeah. Or they want ever, something ever, from ever. you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So here's another point is okay. an abuser expects you, the, the victim to support all of his freeloader friends. 
So, <laughs> so my, you know, my, my ex was constantly entertaining women, sending them on vacations, going interesting places, buying, you know, anything from Home Depot runs with these people to jewelry stores on my money, basically. I mean, oh he, he made my. money, but it was like, we don't have enough money and money was leaving and leaving out the door. It made me really think about the pharmacy benefit managers and all of the coders and all of those people. There is a financial incentive for them, but my work as a doctor is supporting all those people that are making my job harder. Right. <laughs> so why why should I be paying for all of these people, right, right. in medicine? And it's the way medicine is set up now. But I truly believe that if more doctors like recognized how toxic that relationship is, there could be a groundswell of people who lead medicine differently and find something that's truly more functional. Yep. And, and it's part and parcel of what it takes these days in America with multiple payers and all the pressures that the business is under. You have to build a business that has that level of complexity you have to play that game yes. in in order to win from a business perspective. And the overhead is so high in these big hospital systems that have a medical group attached to them. Overhead's up around 60, 70% in many <laughs> cases. They have to have the doctors working at 100% capacity all the time. All the time. Yeah, all the time. And they have to have somebody making sure that you do. And in your case, it's, I need you to work harder for my mistresses. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, hang on a second. There's lipstick on your collar. Pharmacy benefit manager. Allow me to go wash that for you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Take that shirt off. It's got lipstick on it. <laughs> wow. Oh, oh, I can laugh now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I bet that wasn't easy for a very long time. <laughs> it really wasn't. She's out. She made it out. <laughs> That's it. And, and as you go marching, as you go driving by the institution these days, they all point at you from the windows of the ivory <gasps> tower and they say, oh, she got away. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So uh, I think the last point I want to make is that abusers make their victims feel wholly dependent on them. And that's one of the biggest, I'm sure in your practice, in my practice, that's one of the biggest things that people forget that we're smart, creative people who have probably been working and hustling and making things happen outside the medical world before we got into it. And then, but once you're in, this is the only, you know, if I'm not a doctor, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to make my mortgage. I won't be able to you know, take care of my kids. And all of that little cluster of worries is there that if I leave medicine, my world's going to fall apart. And I felt right. the same way in my in my job or in my marriage was if I leave, it's all going to fall apart. You know, I'll lose my house. I won't be able to pay my mortgage. I, a dermatologist, thought I was not going to be able to pay my mortgage. I mean, it was it was perverse, but I was convinced that all of that was going to go when I left my ex, and I won't be married anymore. I won't have that that societally approved label of who I am, wife. Same thing. I won't have that societally approved label, doctor. And were you told that by your ex? Oh, that I don't, won't? 
don't leave me. You'll lose everything. Oh, yeah. Oh, he yeah. He actually kind of cleared me out, too. But uh, I rebuilt. It was fine. <laughs> right. Well, I'm just thinking about how when a doctor suggests that they might leave the practice if there aren't some changes made, how managers talk to you at that point in time, right? Right. Well, one of the sad things I've found, I'll talk about me and other people that I've worked with, is sometimes you just have to say, I'm leaving. There's right. really nothing that you can negotiate, but, you know, because you're stuck in your negotiation world and your corporate world. There's nothing you can negotiate. So I have to leave because there's no there's no acceptable level of wiggle room here that can make it so it works for me. Great. So I think you're looking at your phone while you're talking to me. Do you have the ability to list those five points just a, a sentence at a time? Is yeah, let me do that because I, I had to pull it up. I couldn't remember. Okay. So I I had, I, well, I kind of put two into one. So the first one is an abuser never admits to being wrong. Instead, you clean up the abuser's messes. Okay. Right? So you're shuffling around to make the patients feel better. An abuser never trusts you. Number two. Always and monitoring you, yes. Always monitoring. An abuser does whatever he wants and expects you to roll with the punches. Yep, yep. Yep. Uh, an abuser will tell you you're special but sees other people on the side. <laughs> <laughs> uh, an abuser expects you to support his free, sleazy freeloader friends, and the abusers make their victims feel wholly dependent upon them. Ain't that all just the truth? Yeah. Ain't that all just the truth? Well, let me let me put my spin on it the way I've taught yeah, it please. up until this point in time. Here's the way I see it. What ends up happening is when you make the decision to go to medical school, when you're at the light worker's fork in the road and you choose to be a light worker, a helper, a healer to fight the forces of darkness, illness, suffering, death, dying, and family members, crazed attempts to deal with those those things. The first thing you do for seven to sixteen years is drop yourself into your transit through the bowels of the medical education system. And that is so all-consuming yes. that you jettison your friendships and your hobbies, and you become 100% focused on your career as your identity. Absolutely I true. am a doctor. And what ends up happening is that you you spend all of your time in your practice. You get all of your money from your practice. You look for all of your satisfaction and fulfillment from your practice. You don't ever have an off switch. And what that does is put you in a place where it's very easy to be dominated. Yes. Oh, and take an advantage doubt. of. So one of the things that we teach is that burnout will wake you up by making it physically impossible for you to go further in this relationship with it under these circumstances. So there's several different layers of separation from your career. It's a conscious choice of what relationship I'm going to have, just like your conscious choice of leaving the relationship that you were in. And you're now consciously creating your relationship with your what you consider to be your job, brought in all sorts of new skills and things, right? But here's the progression that I usually see. All in is one stage. Terrarium is a second stage. Terrarium is where you put a lid on your practice. You see your patients, you do your documentation, you don't do anything else at work. You have a nice boundary ritual when you get home to shut the doctor off. The, the third one is a bridge position where you escape this job and take another job knowing it's not where you're going to finally end up. It's, it's a spacer where I'm going to yeah. pay the bills and practice my craft, but I'm moving to a different location. There's side gig 
try something new to spice it up, right? Usually you have to terrarium your regular practice to put a side gig in place. And then there's transition out of medicine. Because one of the things I know is that when you graduate from your last fellowship or residency program, you are truly 100% free to do anything you want. But we're so well-trained to be residents, we just look for another set of tracks in the form of a job description. Absolutely. And you and I'll speak for myself. You feel kind of lost when those tracks aren't there for a little while. You go like, oh, I make the rules now. I'm not used to that. Just tell I me what to the do. Productivity. Right. Exactly. It's, just tell it me what can to do. feel totally disorienting unless you have someone who's going to help you along and help you see that this is you're in a normal place. This is a good place to be. You're going to head, head somewhere else. And um, the challenge, too, is that if you think about your job description and anybody who's listening right now, think about your current job description. Did you play a role in designing that job description? <laughs> the answer is no. What did define the, the boundaries of that job description? It's the revenue model of your employer. I just want to be really clear that that's all it's meant to satisfy. So that's why burnout is inevitable for right. an employee physician. There will come a time where you say, I can't take it anymore. And that's when burnout puts you on a path with more purpose. Just like the day you realize I can't go on in this relationship anymore. Right. And the, and the day that I did that was when I realized I was was harming my kids, basically. have Staying in that bad relationship was not doing the right thing for my children. And so for medicine, it was staying in medicine as I was practicing was actually not doing the right thing for my patients. They were suffering in their own way as much as I was. It was time for me to make a change, not just for the people I, you know, the the few people, I mean, dermatology, I don't see that many people. It's not thousands and thousands, but how can I make a bigger impact that'll really change things for a large number of people? That's that became my driving force, right? And it got me a little f- closer back to why I went into medicine in the first place. You know, I fell in love with medicine like a little duck at age 13. Five days after my 13th birthday, I broke my arm and had this amazing orthopedic surgeon who fixed my arm and I fell in love. And I was like, oh, I want to do what he does. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was thinking you were going to tell me you got a rash from the contact dermatitis from the from the cast on your. Own. No, no, but but I I I grew up with atopic dermatitis and chronic ah. hives as a little kid. So oh when, my, okay, yeah. So I know itchy skin. That's part of it. But this this one derm, this one surgeon basically walked into the ER and said, "You're going to feel okay." And I was like, <laughs> "I feel okay." You're right. I'm do this. And then I realized that I had gotten off track from actually making people feel okay. I was right. making a financial system, which isn't, you know, of questionable ethics in the first place. I was making it feel okay. Right. Well, and I'm I'm gonna end our, our time today, and we need to do this again sometime. I'm certain of that. I want to end uh, our time today with two sayings and a law that all apply here, that that I keep them close in my heart because they sting. They always wake me back up again. Mm. So it goes like this. I teach people how to treat me. Mm. You don't get what you want in life. You get what you tolerate. And now I'm going to give you the inverse of Einstein's insanity. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. So 
one of the keys to making these kind of changes is to stop tolerating anything less than what's ideal for you. Remember, everything that you do with other people in relationships teaches them how to treat you. And in order for anything to change, you have to take new actions. And it's ideal if your new actions are not done in anger or in reaction to something. It's ideal if you can step out of your whirlwind. I'll just show my whirlwind drawing. <laughs> step out of your whirlwind and think about, you know, what is my current satisfaction with my job? What would I like more of? What would I like less of? And actually plan to take some baby steps in a direction that feels right for you. That's that's how you can make some change, significant change over a very short period of time without having to go through the crisis of burnout to get there. Right. Wow. So toxic relationship, abusive relationship. What are we going to call this relationship with your career? <laughs> I would call it a toxic relationship. Okay. So this has been Dyke Drummond, Dr. Elizabeth Hughes on are you in fact in a toxic relationship with your career? Now, Dr. Hughes, where can people find you on the web? Uh, my name is my my website, elizabethhughesmd.com. MD. Okay, great. So Elizabeth Hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S-M-D.com. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. Thank you so very much. This has it's been, been wonderful. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You bet. And that's the end of today's Physicians on Purpose podcast till I see you in another podcast, either on YouTube or on our podcast audio platform. Keep breathing and have a great rest of your day. 